Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 to 21, which is also on page 8 of your bulletin. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is God's word. For the past month, we've been looking at the life of Joseph, and we were saying that the life of Joseph, the narrative of Joseph, is one of the best narratives in the Bible that proves to us that God is active in our suffering. That's what we've been saying. And here we are at the conclusion of the narrative, this whole saga that is Joseph. And I want to say this. Most objections to the Bible are not intellectual. They're personal. Most objections are about this. Why did God allow this? Why did God allow that to happen to me? And and there are people who who really want to know where God is, what he wants of them. And and the Old Testament has narratives. The Old Testament has has answers. The narrative of Joseph, um, it tackles these objections. It shows us again and again that with God, silence is not absence. With God, silence is not weakness. Oftentimes when things go the most wrong, God is most working for our good. That's what this passage is about. That's what this whole saga, the narrative of Joseph, is about. And here we are, we're at the last event of their narrative. And uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of background, verses 12 to 17, Jacob, Joseph's Joseph's father, has passed away. He finally died. And uh, incredible saga narrative that we covered uh, not, not too long ago. And the brothers, his brothers, who sold him off to slavery, you know, who basically ruined his life in many ways, they're now wondering, now that father is gone, what's going to come of us? What's going to become of us? And, uh, you know, they're thinking, you know, it's just Joseph and us now. What's going to happen? So they send a message to Joseph. It was most likely a lie. And the message goes like this, basically. Dad said, now that he's gone, be nice to us. Be good to us. And Joseph hears this message. And he starts to weep. He starts to weep, and then he forgives them. And that's the end of the story. Joseph hears this message. He starts to weep. He forgives them, and that's it. After being sold off into slavery, after 22 years of being abandoned by his family, after 13 years of being imprisoned, after losing the best years with his father, his beloved father, he weeps, then he forgives them, and that's it. This passage is remarkable. It's an amazing story. Joseph completes this reconciliation with his brothers, and he utters three statements to teach us how. So there's one action, three statements. And these things are going to teach us four things, four very quick points. One, uh, the pain of God. Two, the judgment of God. Three, the wisdom of God. And four, the experience of God, the experience 
uh, of the love of God. Um, you have to have all four things. You have to understand the pain of God. You have to uh, put aside the judgment of God. You have to trust in the wisdom of God. And you have to experience the love of God. That's how you're going to be able to forgive the way Joseph forgave in many ways, okay? So uh, first, we're going to see the action, the pain of God. Joseph weeps. Why did he weep? It's because, at least to start, Joseph's own brothers, they didn't trust him anymore. They didn't trust him. Too much time had passed between, and, you know, they basically stopped being a family. He stopped being a part of that family. There was no more trust. And that teaches us this. You cannot reweave the trust that's been torn apart once it's lost. You cannot <clears throat> rebuild a relationship once it's been broken apart, once it's been torn. It takes time. It takes time to, to rebuild trust. It takes time to reweave and restore trust, reweave uh, faith uh, against somebody who's, who's hurt you. What that means is that, um, you know, that, uh, that reconciliation, by and large, when you initially forgive somebody, it's incomplete. It takes time to reweave, to rebuild all that's been lost. Joseph needs to weep. That's what this means. He needs to weep. If he wasn't moved by the loss, if he wasn't moved by the loss of trust and the loss of years, the cost, everything that came about, the cascading of his life as a result of everything that had happened, he wouldn't have wept. Um, similarly, if he said, you know, now that dad is gone, now it's time for you to pay, he wouldn't have wept. There would have been no need to weep. But instead, he's so moved by the loss. He's so moved by the brokenness in his family and he's absorbing the punishment that really his brothers deserved. And as a result of that, that's the first point pretty much. Sin takes a toll on relationships. Sin takes a toll on trust. It breaks trust. Sin uh, takes a toll on your heart. It hurts you emotionally. It hurts you psychologically. It hurts you spiritually, cosmically. That's why Joseph is weeping. He's, taking, he's cataloging. Think about it. His brothers, he's hearing this message. He's cataloging the hurt, the pain, the 22 years. And he knows you can't just easily just bring that together. It takes a tremendous amount of intentionality and work on the person who's forgiving. And it's breaking him apart. And that's why he's weeping. It's painful. Forgiveness is painful. It's incredibly painful. If you've really been damaged by somebody, you would understand that forgiveness takes a tremendous toll on the person forgiving. You can't just let things go. So how do you forgive? Because that's the first point. Joseph weeps. That's the action. You have to understand the pain to forgive first. But the second part is that he utters three things in order to really forgive. Three verses, three things that he says, and taking that and planting that into our hearts is going to teach us and move us to forgive other people in the same way. Three statements. The first statement teaches us about relinquishing the judgment of God. He says, am I in the place of God? The second thing he says, um, <clears throat> in verse 20, he says, uh, you meant it for evil, but God intended it. God meant it for good. He's trusting in the wisdom of God. He sees the wisdom of God through these years. And the third thing he says is, he says, don't be afraid. I'm going to take care of you. Don't be afraid. He's experienced the love of God. And as a result, he's able to now give other people peace, the same peace as he, that he's experienced. These are the marks of a person who's been shaped by grace. These are the marks of a person who's been changed by grace, a changed heart, a heart that's been radically changed. Legalism can't do this. 
You know, religion can't do this. Religion can, can allow you to go through the motions of goodness, the motions of forgiveness. It's easy to say that you're forgiven. But you still maintain the superiority. You still maintain the pride. You still maintain the hurt. And as a result, you can't really forgive. It's not real forgiveness. So we're going to go into these three things that he says. The first statement, verse 19. Joseph says, am I in the place of God? He's letting go of the judgment that only God can give, that only God can show. Joseph, he's the prime minister of Egypt at this point. He's the, pretty much the second in command to the Pharaoh. And he's basically just uh, redeemed his country, saved his country from global economic disaster to the point where everybody else who's, fear, who's experiencing this economic pain is coming to Egypt now for food. And so he's just saved his country. And, but he arrived there. He arrived to Egypt through a series of suffering, through a cascade of suffering. He's been abandoned by his brothers. He was left for dead in a pit. And then he was sold off into slavery. And then he was imprisoned unjustly wrongly accused of adultery and he was imprisoned for 13 years and now he's had the weight of the country on his shoulders. You can imagine the tremendous amount of stress that he's experienced throughout the course. I mean, it's his life that's on the line in reality if you think about it. He's not Egyptian. He was sold into slavery. He came out of jail and basically came up with a a national hunger relief program that would save the country. So his life, his reputation, everything's on the line. His brothers deserve to pay for all of this. Everything that he endured, they deserve to die. The second in command to Egypt, he could have easily now pronounced sentencing and judgment for them. But Joseph says, am I God? Am I in the place of God? In other words, what, he, what he's saying is this. Putting yourself in the place of God, that's at the heart, that's at the root of all of our problems pretty much at the root of all of our problems. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are in the garden. And God says, you can do anything you want. You have tremendous freedom. You can eat. You can do anything you want. There's only one thing I'm asking you not to do. Do not eat of the fruit of that tree. You can do anything you want. You can go anywhere you want. You can name the animals in any way that you want to name them. You have complete sovereignty and dominion as the vice king of this entire world. Just do not eat of the fruit of that tree. Only one command. But when the serpent came, the serpent, what he says is this, eat of that tree and you can be like God. You can be in God's place. In other words, what he says is, if you decide what is right and wrong in your life, for you, rather than following God's words, rather than following or heeding to his authority, you're putting yourself in God's place. You can be like God. I'm, I'm going to give you several examples. Some of them are a bit more uh, sublime. Some of them are a bit more uh, trite. Um, but uh, we're going to go through just some quick examples um, and uh, to give you an idea of what it means to put ourselves in God's place. Here's a few. First, we say, and this is very subtle, because we say or we believe, in the past... People accepted the Bible in its entirety. But today we're more advanced. Today we've arrived. Today we're enlightened. Today we have the wisdom to pick and choose what parts of the Bible are still right and what parts of the Bible are wrong. We have the power and we have the wisdom to pick what parts of the Bible is right and what parts of the Bible are outdated. Now we know that some of the Bible is primitive. Some of the Bible is narrow. Some of the Bible is wrong. And the fallacy really rests in this, that phrase, now we know. That's wrong. Think about this. Here's why. 
When you look back 80 years and you see what people 80 years ago used to say about the world, you know, you cringe because so much of it is so narrow and primitive and wrong. It's easy to do that. But 80 years from now, people are going to look back on what you said and they're going to cringe. And you don't even know what parts that they're going to cringe about, but they're going to cringe because so much of what you're saying, so much of what you're thinking is narrow and primitive and wrong. And you don't even know. You don't know what parts that they're going to cringe about. That's the worst part about it. Because their now makes our now look stupid. And we don't even know what parts look stupid right, right now. Look back on yourself. Every one of us can look back even five years from now. And you say, five years ago, I was so foolish. I was such a fool five years ago. It's easy to do that. Ten years from now, you're going to look back ten years ago, and you're going to say, gosh, I was so foolish, but I was so dumb. I was so stupid. You know what that means? Right now, you are a fool. Right now, you're a fool. You're foolish, and you don't even realize. You think you're wise, but in actuality, right now, you're foolish. No matter how enlightened we believe we are, no matter how wise we assume we are, we're foolish. We're still all fools. And that's what it means. You can't use now as a vantage point for what is right in the Bible. If you absolutize the concept of now, and you say, this is why I can decide what is right and wrong for me. This is why I can decide what is right or wrong in the Bible. Rather than having the Bible interpret for you the world, or rather than having the Bible interpret for, you, interpret for you what is right or what is wrong in your world, then you've placed yourself in the place of God. Another way we play God, we let people look to us to meet our deepest needs. We let people look to us to meet their deepest needs, or we look to other people to meet our deepest needs. Now, I wish I could go into that, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to move on, all right? We, it's easy to do that, you know, um, and, and that's very important to know. Here's two people. Here's an example. Here's two people. They're in love. Um, and uh, deep in their heart, something's going on in their hearts. Deep in the heart. It's going on in both, heart, both hearts. They start to say to themselves, this is what I needed all along in my life. If I just get married to this person, then my life is going to matter. Then my life is going to count. I'm feel, finally going to feel good about my life. Tiffany DeBartolo, she wrote a a pretty famous book called The God-Shaped Hole, and this is what she writes. We're all searching for something to fill up what I like to call that big God-shaped hole in our souls. Some people use alcohol or sex or their children or food or money or music or heroin. A lot of people even use the concept of God itself. I could go on and on. I used to know a girl who used shoes. She had over 200 pairs. But it's all the same thing, really. People, for some stupid reason, think they can escape their sorrows. At some point in the relationship, here's what we need to do. We need to be able to look to the other person and say, don't look to me for what only God can do. And I'm not going to look to you for what only God can do. You have to look to your children. Parents, you need to look to your children. You need to look to your children and say, I can't look to you provide for me the joy that only God can provide. And you can't look to me to provide only what God can provide. Every day you need to look to your job or your studies. Every day, I mean, I find myself, I have to say this every day, and say, I can't look to my job or my title, my position, my salary for what only God can provide. You can't look to your health or your sexual life or your athletic ability or your looks 
for what only God can provide, the sense of worth that only God can provide. Otherwise, you're going to spend the rest of your life picking up broken pieces in your life. That's what you're going to do. Another way um, that we tend to do it, I'll go very quickly here, is um, through excessive worry. We tend to worry a lot. When you just know what must happen for your life, for your happiness, but you're not sure, you're so uncertain if God's going to work up to that for you, if God's going to do those things for you, you're not sure if God's going to make it right for you, then we worry. You know, um, you've got to admit, we don't know what's good for our lives. We don't know. And if we just relinquish these things, it will save us from inordinate anxiety, inordinate worry. But the last thing that we do is we tend to hold a grudge. We tend to hold on to anger against people who've wronged us, against parents who've wronged us, against siblings who've wronged us. We're sitting in God's seat. God says, Romans 12, he says it again, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's what he says. In other words, it's mine, Get out of my seat. Get out of my chair. I'm the judge. Only I reserve the right to judge. Only I have the knowledge. Only I know what each person really deserves. You think you know, but you don't have the knowledge. You don't have the backstory. You don't know what really happened in its entirety. Only God has the right. Only God has the knowledge. Only God has the power to really, really sit in a chair without becoming evil himself. If someone wrongs you and you nurse that judgment, and we've done that, we've all done that, we've just nursed the judgment. What happens is you become evil yourself. You start to become evil. That evil starts to, to go into you and it makes you hard and it makes you cold and it makes you possessive and it makes you like unforgiving, unyielding, prideful. You know, only, the only solution is to really relinquish that because you become self-absorbed and self-centered into that, into that evil. You're repaying evil with evil. That's what you're doing. You become evil. Remember Lord of the Rings? Amazing story. Here's a ring forged by the Dark Lord. And if you possess that ring, what happens is the weight of God is placed into that. And it makes you evil. It starts, to, it starts to transform you. Even the way you look, you start to look evil. No one has the power to behold the ring without becoming evil, without becoming possessive, without becoming unforgiving. And the only solution is to do what? You have to throw the ring away into the fire. That's the only way. The evil has to be consumed. You have to let it go. The fastest way to become like Satan is to try to be God. That's the fastest way. The fastest way to become like God is to not to pretend to be God. The fastest way to become like God is to not to pretend to be God, not to pretend to be the judge, refuse to be God, and you're going to become truly godly. You're going to become forgiving and joyful and you're going to have power, and you're going to have peace, and you're going to be generous. It's an amazing thing. You've got to relinquish the judgment of God. That's the first thing that he says, verse 19. Now, verse 20. Here's how we, uh, what he says is amazing here, and here we learn about trusting in the wisdom of God. If you're hiking, and you're going down a ravine, you're going down into a valley, and you get lost, staying in the valley is not going to help you. You know, you're in a ravine, you're in a valley, and you, you try to look around, you try to look, you, you, staying there is not going to help you. You know what you need to do? You need to go to a mountaintop. You need a map. You go to a mountaintop, and you see out, oh, that overlooks everything. You say, oh, there's where we were, and there's where we're headed if we keep going down that path. Now I get it, that we're going the right way. You know, it looked bad, looked dangerous, but we're going the right way. You need to be on top of a mountain to be able to see these things. You need perspective. Joseph's brothers, they're living in their past sins. 
They're living in their guilt. They're living in fear. How do you examine? How do you interpret all of your troubles? How do you do that? From the top? You know, or down in the valley, in the situation. Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God intended it. God meant it for good. He's actually showing us a view, his view from the mountaintop. That's what he's doing. He's looking down. He says, you know, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. With all that he's gone through, that's amazing. It's remarkable, isn't it? It's an amazing thing that, that, he, that you see here. From the bottom, you cannot reconcile your experience of pain with God's intention for good. You can't reconcile those two things when you're sitting in the ravine and when you're lost. But if you look at the two parts of this, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Down in the valley, you can't reconcile those two things. Because, you know, in the valley, we tend to believe if you live a good life, God is good. And if you live a bad life, then God will be absent. God must be bad in your life, but not Joseph. Here, he looks at these two parts. He says, you, you meant it for evil. You, you're evil. But God meant it for good. God is good. And he brings those two things together. He doesn't say, everything's good. That's not what he says. He doesn't minimize the pain that he went through. He says, he calls it out. He says, evil is evil. In other words, life is terrible. My life has been incredibly terrible. But God has been faithful. God has been good in my life. We see that throughout scripture. You know, the book of Job totally blows away any assertion that if you live a good life, you're going to be blessed. Because Job, he lived a good life. And yet he suffered. In the book of Job, he suffered tremendously. And you see that in Joseph's life. Joseph was evil for a good portion of his, of his years, the earlier part of his years. And yet he rises to the top. He's incredibly blessed at times. Uh, Jesus, the perfect example, he lived a perfect life on earth and yet suffered. He had the worst life on earth and it was all for the good. And if God uses Jesus' suffering if God uses Jesus, even Jesus' suffering for the good, he would surely use our suffering for the good, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he do that? Some of you this week, you're going to fail immensely. You're going to fail an exam. You're going to fail at work. You're going to fail with your children, your aspirations, your hopes, your dreams. You're going to be lost. But when that happens, while your friends are going off and drinking their lives away, or while the rest of your friends are going to somehow try to figure out a way to compensate for their inferiority complex, you can be different. Here's Jacob. Jacob lied to Isaac. Jacob lied to Esau. It poisoned his life. It completely blew up his life. But think about it this way. Only because of this did he have children. And only because of this did one of his children become Jesus. One of his descendants became Jesus. You know what that means? You don't have to regret your life. You don't have to regret any decision you've made opportunities that were lost, mistakes that were made, horrible, just absolutely horrible mistakes that you've made that completely blew up your life. You can't mess life up. That's what this means. You can't mess up your life. Not even you. God intended all that you're going through. You ever counsel somebody, you know, who's just going through a lot and you somehow try to muster up scripture, you hear out their problems and you you try to counsel them through scripture. If you do that enough, inevitably somebody's going to come to you and set you straight. They're going to say, you know, um, what you're saying is great, but you are not me. You never went through anything that I went through. You've never gone through this. I could say, you're right, I didn't. In fact, I went through this and you've never gone through that. And if you continue to go back and forth like that, then you're just two people pitying yourselves and pitying each other. Some people say, you know, you've never gone through this. You know what I should say? You're right. 
you're going through it. You're going through this. It's not an issue of who went through it. You know, uh, that wouldn't help you. At least it's not going to help you that much. But the real question is, and you can draw strength from this, whatever it is that you're going through, did God intend it or did he mess up? Did God intend it or did he screw up here? If he screwed up, if he made a mistake, then you have every reason to despair. You have every reason to be sad. You have every reason to walk away from him. But he did intend it. And Joseph here, he's saying, he, you meant it for evil, but it didn't sink me. It didn't ruin me. In fact, it saved me. It changed me. And it saved other people. That's an amazing thing that he's saying. Think about this. Why are we all here? It's because we planted Metro Presbyterian Church. That's why we're here. But why did we plant Metro Presbyterian Church? It's because years ago, I became a part of the PCA. It's a denomination that values gospel-centeredness and church planning. You put those two things together, then you're going to become a church planner. Now, why did I join the PCA? It's because years before that, I was influenced by a group of mentors. One of them in particular in 2008, I met at a Starbucks in Roxborough. We conceived the concept, the idea of Metro Presbyterian Church, and I sat on that, and we just prayed that through for years before this past August. Now, why did that happen? Well, it was because when I was in Boston, I lived in Boston for 11 years prior to coming back to Philadelphia, and um, I was actually supposed to be joining. I came back to Philadelphia to join another church planner to become a part of his church, actually. But I anguished over the decision not to join and eventually chose not to do that, and I went to the PCA instead. And the reason why I did that was because I went to, I was in Boston. I was, for 10 years, I was part of one church there, During the last year, I could have just finished it off there and then come back to Philadelphia, but that last year, I actually joined a church plant that had just started that was part of the PCA, and there I caught the bug. Now, why was I in Boston? Well, it was because growing up, I was incredibly inspired by President Ronald Reagan and speeches from John F. Kennedy, and uh, they, they inspired the youth of their generation. And, uh, and they, you know, I said, I want to be part of the academic mecca uh, in the world, and I went to Boston. Now, why did that happen? Well, it was because my parents, they immigrated. They emigrated out of Korea uh, into the United States. And uh, my mother decided uh, she was a nurse uh, in Korea, but she wanted to stay in, in Philadelphia and instilled a work ethic in my life. And I worked hard, and I ended up in Boston. Why did that happen? Well, it was because actually my father was murdered in Philadelphia. We were actually only supposed to be in Philadelphia for three years. Uh, a few years, actually. Not, I don't know, three years, but a few years before we were, go, before we were to go back to Korea. And, you know, everybody, would, my f- mother and father would resume their careers there. But my father, right by Temple University, was murdered. And uh, through a series of uh, decisions that had to be made, and I was not a part of any of them, I was like five years old, my mother decided to stay in Philadelphia and give up her career and raise us here. You know what that means? My father was murdered. President Ronald Reagan gave speeches and Kennedy gave speeches so that you could be here together with me at Metro Presbyterian Church. That's what that means. Now, that would be incredibly terrible and it would be selfish and self-absorbed to think that way because that's probably just one of a billion reasons why those things happened. Any one of those things happened. One of a billion reasons why. Evil things happen. But God is faithful and he's good. You can trust that. You can trust in his wisdom. What a resource it is to trust that. 
You can trust that you can't screw up your life. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, you can't screw up your life. What a resource to trust that. You can trust in God. You can believe in God. You know, you can go to him. What a resource that is. And if you haven't gone to him before, you can come to him. That's an amazing resource, isn't it? That's the second thing that Joseph was saying. The last thing that he says, and it's because he experienced the love of God, and we need to experience the love of God in order to forgive. Verse 21, he says, don't be afraid. He says, I'm going to take care of you. Don't be afraid. Joseph's brothers had every reason to be afraid. They hated him. They rejected him, and he knew that. They harmed him. They beat him up. They persecuted him. They left him for dead in a pit, and then they sold him off to slavery. Can you believe that? They did the exact opposite that a brother should do for their brothers. And so Joseph, he he forgives them because he realizes, I am not God. I am not in God's place. He's humbled. And he sees God's view, the view from the mountaintop, and that God is always working for the good. And he's thinking about what his brothers, the message that they sent to him, he sees their fear, their lack of trust, the, the brokenness in their lives, and he starts to weep. It brings him to tears. And he's thinking, you know, is God the type of God to bring him all the way to this point now to say, ha-ha, now I've got you. Bow to me like it was in my dreams and then burn to death. No, that's not what he's doing here. He knows that that would make God vindictive, that would make him just absolutely irresponsible and evil, and he's not like that. He's seen that in his own life. Joseph is looking at his own life, and he sees that God has loved him despite his evil, even when he didn't deserve it, that he was spoiled, he was arrogant, he was prideful, but over those years, those 22 years, he became incredibly humbled. He was humbled. He sees the unmerited grace of God. And it humbled him. And it didn't just humble him. It assured him. It gave him wisdom and love to assure other people. It gave him power to basically love people that have harmed him tremendously. Now you say, I can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do what Joseph did. That means you're in the valley right now. You're in the valley. You're in the ravine. You need to come up to the mountaintop. Anyone who understands the gospel understands more than what Abraham or Jacob or Joseph ever had. Joseph, and it's an amazing thing, he had an understanding of grace. He had an understanding of the cost. He had an understanding of the unmerited favor that he received. But we have a fuller understanding. We have the fullest understanding. Joseph, he says, you know, am I in the place of God? He didn't put himself in the place of God because he wasn't God. But Jesus is God. Jesus was betrayed. He was God, and yet he was betrayed. He was betrayed by his brothers. He was betrayed by his friends. He was abandoned. He was rejected. He was harmed. He was left for dead. Jesus deserved, Jesus deserved to be in the place of God, but he was placed into suffering, tremendous suffering. You know, John chapter 11, Jesus is standing before a grave. His friend, Lazarus, had passed. He died. And, uh, and, you know, he could have gone there earlier to help him. In fact, his friend says, your friend, if you look at that passage, the word love, the word love shows up, I think, three or four times in John chapter 11. The one you love is sick. Prior to that chapter, chapter 11, the word love only shows up like four or five times. But we get to chapter 11, and chapter 11 alone, the word love shows up at least three or four times. And they said, the one you love is sick, but Jesus intentionally waits. 
he becomes silent. And he waits until Lazarus is dead. And finally, he goes up to the grave of Lazarus and he sees the stone has rolled over Lazarus's grave. The shortest verse in the entire Bible is what? Jesus wept. Why did he weep? It's because he saw the cost. He knows you can't reweave what's broken. He knows that. You know, too much has happened. Too much time has passed. You can't reweave that brokenness. But in John chapter 21, 10 chapters later, now it's after the resurrection. This whole passage in John chapter 21 is set up for one of his friends who betrayed him, Peter. It's a beautiful text. Peter is guilty. Peter abandoned Jesus, much like Joseph's brothers abandoned him. He had done evil. He betrayed Jesus three times. And now he's wallowing in self-pity because Jesus has risen from the dead and he knows he's just absolutely guilty. And, he see, and Jesus confronts Peter and three times Jesus reinstates him. For every time that Peter betrayed him, Jesus reinstates him. And he says, basically, how, how does he forgive him? He says, Peter, do you love me? Each time. In other words, what he's saying is, Peter, you failed me. I mean, do you love me? Because you failed me. And Peter says, I know. I failed you. But I love you. Three times he asks him. Three times he, he, uh, he reinstates him. Um, but what does he do? Does he say, now that you failed me, you need to work your way back into my favor. You need to work your way back into my trust. That's not what he says. He says three words. Feed my sheep. You know what he's doing there? He says, Peter, you failed me. Three times. Peter says, I know. But I love you. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you the whole reason why I came. I'm going to entrust those things to you. The whole reason why I died was for you. And I'm going to entrust all the people that I died for, my sheep. Here are the keys to the kingdom. That, it's not just the words that reinstated Peter. It's the action It's knowing the cost. It's sensing the judgment. It's trusting. It's Jesus trusting in the wisdom of God and being able to say, you are forgiven. To the end, to the greatest extent. How do you know that? How do you know that? And Peter is reconciled absolutely, completely. He's restored completely. Jesus says, he says, you didn't mess up your life, Peter. You think you messed up your life. That's why you're wallowing in self-pity. You didn't mess up your life. It was absolutely intentional so that I can make you greater. So that you become greater. Jesus says, you know, you betrayed me. You hurt me. I was in the place of God, but I became poor. I suffered. I was arrested, and I died for you, for you. This is why you can't mess up your life. God brings good out of the evil in your life just, just like he brought, you know, because he brought the ultimate good out of the ultimate evil in my life. You're forgiven. Let that humble you. Let that renew you. Let that change you. Let that change you. Let that move you. Let that empower you. Let this truth become the ultimate resource in your life. Now, how does that happen? On the cross, Jesus says, it is finished. The work is done. The reconciliation, in other words, is complete. 
He completed the reconciliation. We can't do anything on our own to reconcile ourselves to God the Father. But Jesus, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus repays the ultimate evil with the ultimate good. He, beats, he literally beats evil at his own game. He literally becomes evil on the cross, and then he dies so that evil will die once and for all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How does he do that? God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. But because of his love for you on the cross, he poured out his wrath on Christ. He paid it all on Christ. He poured it out. Jesus paid the price. Do you see that? Evil will be wiped away forever. Do you see that? This is why you don't need to look to other people for what only God can provide to meet your deepest needs. This is why we don't need people to look to us to meet their deepest needs. You know, that's a tremendous amount of pressure. It's, going, it's only going to lead to more opportunities of anger and bitterness. The corrosion of your soul, it's going to kill relationships. But the reason, this is why you need to look to Jesus. You need to look to Jesus to meet your deepest needs. That's going to humble you. This is why we can stand on a mountaintop and trust in the wisdom of God when you feel lost at times, when you just feel completely out of sorts because you just can't forgive. You know, you're, you're, you're just wallowing in your anger and you're, you're brooding and you're simmering and, and you're marinating in your anger and your bitterness. This is, why, this is how you do it. This is how you get on the mountaintop. This is how you restore people. This is how you go all the way. If you don't practice this, anger is going to consume you. Your hate will, 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 will kill you, will consume you, even if you feel like you're winning the battle. You know, when you feel, when you're you're retaliating against someone who's wronged you, it makes you feel good for a little while. But what happens is that evil stays and consumes you. You think the evil will go away? You think the pain goes away when you retaliate? It actually stays and actually grows. You become bitter. You become that evil. You know, the the famous uh, saying, the Nazis uh, during World War II, uh, they killed the Jews because they hated them. But later on, they hated them because they killed them. It's so true. That's what happens. But if the truth that Jesus absorbed the ultimate evil, if that goes deeper in your life, that's going to humble you. Joseph, incredibly humbled. And then you're going to be able to absorb the betrayals. You're going to be able to absorb the slander in your life. You're going to be able to absorb the evil in your life. You're going to be able to have wisdom so that you can love people. Because if you experience the love of God in your life, Life is incredibly hard. It's incredibly broken. Um, You have to take your pains, the evil that you're absorbing, and you have to plunge those things in the wounds of Christ. That's how you find the power. That's how you find the incredible power to forgive people. That's how you get healed in the process. When you first forgive, it feels like death. But eventually, the evil itself dies away and you'll have peace. It's very counterintuitive, but that's what happens. Look to the love of Christ. Evil done away with once and for all. And all that he is is grace and mercy and love and peace. And that's what he gives to us. Will you trust in that this week? Will you do that? Let's pray.